Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 22. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. 
Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride <clears throat> and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Thank you for reading for us, Daniel. If you want to keep that scripture passage open, we're going to be looking at that together. So um, you can find space um, for notes as well on page four. Um, as well as some discussion questions there at the end for after the service. So before we uh, dive in, why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help? Let's pray. Um, Father God, thank you for uh, the events that we have just read of. Thank you for your preserving and protecting grace um, to your Apostle Paul in the midst of it. Um, and Lord, we thank you for your grace and goodness to us this morning that we can gather in your name and hear your word. So we pray that you will, uh, you will give us ears to hear what you have to say to us um, by your spirit through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Self-driving cars, um, I believe that they are the future. Now, maybe that is an encouraging prospect to you, or maybe it fills you with fear and trepidation. Now, I was discussing with you, though, one of the benefits of self-driving cars. Um, think about this for a moment. If someone tries to steal your self-driving car, well, it will just lock the doors and drive them straight to the police station. So that's uh, good news. Now, one of the big appeals of a self-driving car is surely the fact that it removes the element of responsibility from the occasion, and that's why perhaps insurance agents will never let uh, us get away with having them. 
Uh, the car does all of the work for you. Um, it gets you where you want to be. And I wonder if we sometimes wish as if there was some kind of self-driving car for life itself. If only we could just sit back and enjoy the ride. Wouldn't that be living the dream? In fact, I don't think it would be the living the dream. I think it would be more of a nightmare because God has created us to be responsible beings. He calls us to engage in life rather than just put our feet up. Uh, work is one of those things with which we have a kind of love-hate relationship. If we have nothing to do, we feel miserable, and if we have something to do, we feel miserable about that as well. But it's better than the alternative. Uh, but one of the things we've seen in Acts again and again is that God calls us not just to engage in, in our work, but amid our work and everything else, to be engaged in his mission. The gospel has been going out throughout the book of Acts, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and, and on to the very ends of the earth. And that gospel journey continues this morning. It might be getting old now, but I've been comparing that gospel progress to a road trip. Uh, we've said that the progress of the gospel is like that. It's like a road trip, and occasionally it hits against rough terrain. And we find that in these closing chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, but in his word, God helps us with our defensive driving, so to speak. Uh, he equips us in his word to navigate the difficult situations that we face at home, uh, in our work, and also in a culture where it seems incredibly difficult to stand as a Christian. Uh, and what we learn today should encourage us. It is uh, another kind of defensive driving tip. Uh, it reminds us, our scriptures today remind us that, uh, in one sense, the gospel mission is like a self-driving car. Uh, by which I mean, uh, as God moves the gospel forward, he is in the driver's seat. Uh, if we commit ourselves to his mission, uh, he will not necessarily get us where we want to be, but he will get us wherever he wants us to be. Uh, and there is nothing at all that can get in the way of that happening. Uh, he will find a way to orchestrate all of the details of our lives, both past and present and future, to achieve his great purposes. And this really is the point today. This is another one of those defensive driving tips. As we play our part in God's plan, we should have confidence in God's sovereign rule over everything. As we play our part in God's plan, we should have confidence in God's sovereign rule over everything. It's only when we realize that he is in control that we will have confidence to engage. And we see that in our text in two specific ways. As Paul narrowly avoids being flogged, as he's uh, avoids being torn apart in this court as he avoids being ambushed and assassinated. What we see is this. We see firstly that we should recognize God's sovereign preparation. Recognize God's sovereign preparation. And then secondly, we should rely on God's sovereign protection. Uh, recognize God's sovereign preparation and then secondly, rely on God's sovereign protection. Uh, firstly, we need to recognize God's sovereign preparation. And the point here is really this. It's to recognize the fact that God sovereignly orders the past. And that past includes the details of your personal history. Uh, by which I mean God knows the end from the beginning. And God has engineered the finest details of your life, even the place of your birth, to prepare you for the challenges and opportunities that you face today. Uh, in other words, one of the things that Acts reassures us of is the fact that God has a plan. Uh, this plan includes the big things, the big details, but it also extends down to the smallest of details. And to help you see that, we're going to consider these two examples in chapter 2, verse 22, through to chapter 23, verse 10. That's what we're looking at with this first point. 
Uh, firstly, what we see is how Paul's Roman citizenship allows him to escape being flogged. And then secondly, we see how Paul's background as a Pharisee helps him avoid this, uh, this, this trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, now, these stories may be familiar to you or they may be completely new. But either way, it's certainly very curious what exactly is going on. Uh, one interpretation of these events, and I have to say this is the interpretation I started the week with, uh, but one of the interpretations is really that Paul is being cunning and shrewd. Uh, as we look at these uh, chapters, we could say Paul is very politically astute. Uh, he's a very smooth operator, isn't he? Uh, I mean, in each of these cases, Paul is working the angles. He's leveraging his circumstances for his advantage, or we want to ask perhaps, is he? Uh, look at verse 25. You could understand verse 25 in this way. Uh, but when they had stretched Paul out uh, for the whips, Paul, uh, in a very timely way, said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen? Now, is Paul here just kind of leveraging his citizen to a, uh, citizenship to escape the pain? Uh, it seems that way, certainly, doesn't it? Uh, and then you look at uh, chapter 23, verse 6. I mean, this really is a pure display of political cunning. I mean, wouldn't it be great to see this kind of thing on C-SPAN in, in Congress or something? Look down at, at verse 6. And now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is in respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial today. And no surprise when they... Uh, when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what is Paul doing here? Is he just kind of hamming up a certain doctrine, the resurrection, on which he knew these people disagreed? Um, is he massaging and manipulating the crowd to, to steer uh, this great division to happen and so he can just kind of slink off quietly while they're all fighting with each other? Uh, well, Jesus does say we should be as shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves. Uh, there is a place for wisely navigating the potential landmines we face in service of Jesus. Uh, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about how that can happen in those family conversations. We need to know when to steer in and when to swerve away. Uh, but I'd like to suggest that isn't really what is going on at all. Uh, as I reflected more and more on this text, I, uh, what I concluded was this, that Paul isn't really working it here. Uh, this isn't really showing us how serving Christ requires us to be very good at manipulating our circumstances. Uh, I mean, we have to ask if that is true, if Paul is such a good uh, good at this, if he's so good at this, then why did he end up on trial in the first place? Why is he even in prison? Why didn't he find some way to escape? Uh, I mean, and why does all of that seem to go against what Paul sells, says elsewhere about his ministry? Uh, let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, Paul says this, he says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The very last thing Paul would ever do is tweak his message or emphasize a certain doctrine just because it happened to be expedient within the moment. Now, don't get me wrong, we do need to use our brains. We have to avoid unnecessary conflict by being wise, but, but the point is not that Paul has a cunning plan to get where he wants to be. And now actually, surely the main point is this, that God has a plan. Uh, God has a plan to get Paul where he wants Paul to be. 
And in both cases, this is what I want you to see. Uh, in both cases, we see how God has engineered the details of Paul's life perfectly for this moment. But we discover how God has perfectly fitted Paul for what is taking place. Uh, Paul is prepared, but why? Well, because God has providentially prepared him for this. Now, all Paul is doing, and, and in fact all we need to do, is, is recognize the reality of God's own sovereign preparation. I mean, consider what is really going on. What do we learn about Paul's Roman citizenship? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? He, he was a citizen by birth, from birth. Did Paul have any say in that citizenship? No, just as we don't play any part in our own family upbringing. And yet, at this very moment, Paul's background comes into play, and it comes into play very, very significantly. Uh, flogging was a very serious thing. Paul wasn't just taking a, just a, a few lashes here. Uh, flogging was very much like the other enhanced interrogation techniques that we employ today. That it, was, it was merciless. It, it, he could have been permanently injured. This, it could have been fatal. This could have been the very end of Paul's meaningful ministry. And what makes the difference? Well, actually, the only thing that makes the difference is the circumstances of Paul's birth. Uh, it turns out this citizenship was a gift from God, a, a gift that actually opened uh, doors as we continue through this book. We see it actually leads him to Rome, to where God wants him to be. Uh, which is striking, particularly because this tribune had to pay a lot of money uh, for this citizenship. And yet Paul receives it as a gift. And, and so I want to suggest this, that this first account draws attention not to, not to Paul's cunning, but rather to God's sovereign preparation. God has prepared Paul for this very specific ministry. And we see the very same thing in the Sanhedrin as well. Uh, remember, in the past, Paul was a very zealous Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisees was a very exclusive Jewish sect. Uh, as part of that group, Paul used to fiercely persecute the church, uh, which is something of which he had to later repent. And yet consider for a moment how God even used this, something of which Paul had to repent. God would use that to advance his gospel purposes. Uh, look down at verse 5, consider the argument that Paul makes. Uh, now, when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in, a, in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is res with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial today. Uh, what is Paul's defense? Well, Paul points to his past. He points to the fact that he was raised a Pharisee. He's a son of a Pharisee. Uh, again, this speaks to his background, doesn't it? Uh, but secondly, Paul points to the resurrection of the dead. Uh, what's the point here? Is, is Paul just simply starting a fight? The Pharisees believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees do not. Uh, well, some people suggest that's what Paul is doing. It's like shouting fire in a crowded room. He's just causing chaos so that he can escape. And yet we need to understand the resurrection of the dead is not just a convenient doctrine for Paul. Uh, it isn't something he raises here simply because it's inflammatory. Uh, no, in fact, again and again and again, this is exactly what Paul is about. This is just what he keeps harping on about again and again, wherever he goes. And the reason is because this was a key part of Paul's own unique testimony. Now, obviously, the resurrection of the dead is something that we all believe in. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is the hope for everyone. And yet, this is one of the things that made Paul unique. He had seen the risen Lord Jesus with his own eyes. And this is something that comes out in the rest of his speeches and, and throughout all of his letters as well. It is something evident all over everything Paul says, everything Paul writes. So this constant emphasis on the resurrection. 
Uh, and so the point surely is this, that this background is a Pharisee and this, this unique testimony is being used by God. Uh, we need to see how God has prepared Paul uh, for exactly what he is now experiencing. Uh, and this is the point. In a very similar way, God has prepared you. Uh, you see, God has a plan. And, and actually, for every single one of us, God has a unique part in that plan for you. It might not be taking the gospel to Rome. That was God's plan for Paul. And yet God does call you to be a witness to the people around you. God calls you to demonstrate his love to your friends, to your family, to your colleagues, to your neighbors. And this actually is something that only you can do. Do you know that? That only you can do what God has called you to do. God has a unique, a special role. God has given you a very unique network of relationships. And listen, that might sound like a challenge. Wow, God places such a burden on me. But God has fitted you for that task. God has made you unique and prepared your unique history for this purpose. Let me give you a a more obvious example. I'm thinking of one of the the mission partners that our church supports, uh, a young guy called Chris, Chris B., and his wife, Ashlyn. Uh, Many of you know him because he was formerly and actually still is a member of this church. Chris is now serving in North Africa. And how did God prepare him for that? Well, well, years ago, Chris was involved in an internship serving the immigrant community in Allentown. In a part of that uh, internship, Chris began the process of, of learning Arabic so that he could minister and serve to the people around him. Uh, little did he know exactly what God had planned. And yet God had a plan. God prepared Chris for his future through that present experience. Uh, And you might be saying to yourself, well, that's fine for Chris. I mean, he's a missionary. Obviously, God prepares missionaries, but uh, the apostle Paul, Chris, but but what about little old me? Uh, Well, God has prepared you in a similar way, even though at times it it may feel a bit less dramatic. But let me give you another example from my own experience. I was in Costco um, the other day. uh, If you go there on Friday, you'll often see me. And uh, I had Felicity with me, and there is uh, nothing like a, a baby to serve as a conversation starter. And so I started chatting to someone, and and as I did, they started sharing how they grew up in in White Plains, New York. And now we used to live just down the road from White Plains in Greenwich, Connecticut. And so we ended up chatting a little bit about the traffic, about how terrible it was up there and such things. Uh, I didn't get a chance to share the gospel, but, but, but that one small connection kept the conversation open long enough so that I could invite them along here to church. It's a very small thing, but God sovereignly prepares us. I mean, think for a moment about about the challenges, the opportunities that you currently face. Think, for example, about the the challenging family situation you're in. Uh, God put you in that family, and he put you in that family for a reason. And consider how your past may have prepared you for what you face today. You aren't a Roman citizen, but there is something. It could be the circumstances of your birth. It may be something about your upbringing the city in which you were raised, the friends that you have, the hobbies, the interests, even the college that you went to. Maybe you're a Penn State fan. Uh, And even that was providentially orchestrated by God because it's a point of connection between you and your non-Christian neighbor. Even the bad choices that we've made in the past can turn out to serve God's ends. I mean, uh, even the fact that Paul was a Pharisee Uh, something of which he had to repent, his persecution of the church, even God would use that uh, to prepare Paul to magnify his own mercy. Uh, The good, the bad, the ugly in your past has a purpose in accomplishing God's will. 
I mean, we spend a lot of time apologizing for our past, don't we? And, and sometimes we have to say that is necessary. Uh, we spend a lot of time recovering from our past, and again, sadly, that is often essential. Uh, but we also need to recognize the role of our sovereign God in, in who we are. Uh, in fact, it's like David says in the Psalms, he says this, uh, the Lord prepared his hand for battle. Uh, I love the story of how David faced Goliath, and as he faces Goliath, what does he say with Goliath standing there looking mean? Well, well, he actually looks to the past. Uh, God allowed him to cut his teeth not on Goliath, but fending off a lion or a bear. And sometimes, like Paul, we need to recognize this. We need to draw uh, our attention to that in the moment. We need to lean on the way that God has prepared us for the challenges and opportunities we face today. Uh, I mean, do you recognize God's preparation in your own life? Do you see how how the past prepares you uh, to face the present moment. I mean, of course, ultimately this points us to Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus Christ, uh, much more than Paul, was perfectly prepared for the task that was laid before him. Uh, his preparation included the family into which he was born. He was the son of David. He was David's greatest son. Uh, and his preparation included his perfect humanity, his path of perfect obedience, uh, to be the Lamb of God, the pure spotless Lamb slain, for the sins of the world. And thankfully, because of that, we can know his forgiveness today. Uh, and actually, the good news of that also is this, that we don't have to be perfect to accomplish God's plan for us. Uh, God calls us to be his saints, his servants, even though we're sinners. Uh, in us, like Paul, God can magnify his mercy. Uh, he uses our sin, he uses our suffering to further his plans. And so consider this, consider whatever challenges and opportunities you face today. Uh, recognize how God has sovereignly prepared you for them. Uh, recognize God's sovereign preparation, that's something we see in our text. Uh, ask him to open your eyes to that, he, even as the Lord reminded Paul of his citizenship, as he reminded him of his past as a Pharisee and how that will serve his purpose. But having done that, uh, secondly, let's move on to consider how we must rely on God's protection. Rely on God's sovereign protection. You see, if in the first point we considered God's sovereignty over the past, now what we're considering is God's sovereignty over the future. Uh, now, looking back on the past can be rough. We're reminded of perhaps all kinds of terrible things that we have done or terrible, terrible things that have been done to us. Uh, but looking to the future can feel even more scary than that. Maybe we face uncertainty and uh, maybe you're feeling uncertainty about the future right now. You just aren't really sure what lies before you. Uh, you aren't sure even if there's anything you can do to influence the outcome of future events. Uh, well, that's exactly where Paul finds himself in, in this text that we've read this morning. Uh, he's in a situation where there is nothing that he could do. Uh, look down at verse 10 with me and you'll see. Uh, no matter how God had prepared Paul, Paul remains locked in prison. Verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. And now God uses Paul's citizenship and his background to, to help him navigate this hurdle, and now he's even using these, these Roman Gentiles to help keep him safe in the midst of this, this kind of Jewish kerfuffle. Uh, but what lies ahead for Paul? He's back in prison. Uh, well, Paul has faithfully served Christ through it all, and, and look at how Jesus Christ assures him there in verse 11. Even as Paul languishes in prison, uh, the Lord comes to him. Uh, we read in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, 
as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And now that word must it was surely incredibly encouraging to Paul. I mean, this is what Paul has been hoping for all along. Ever since chapter 19, 19 Paul had, had wanted to go to Rome. And he takes this detour down to Jerusalem before he goes. But, uh, but for the first time, God now makes this clear. Uh, this isn't just what Paul wants. It isn't just what Paul had planned. No, this is God's plan. Uh, Paul now finds that his plans align with God's great purposes. Uh, and these reassuring words serve as a kind of pivot in the text. You see, before this point, Paul is incredibly active. He's testifying to the facts about Jesus in the previous verses. But now look at in verses 12 through 35, and you'll see that Paul is passive. In one sense, Paul actually doesn't do anything at all in these verses. Instead, we see a lot of, a lot of other actors in play, um, actors beyond Paul's control. Firstly, we learn about this plot. It's there in verses 12 through 15, and then... Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? In verse 16 through 35, we see how God providentially protects him. And surely the point we take away is this. Uh, sometimes it, it feels like we just are not in control. Uh, instead, like Paul, we find ourselves completely and utterly at the mercy of other people. Uh, and this can be a disconcerting place to be, uh, especially when it seems those people have um, malicious intent against us. And yet even here we have to remember that God is in control. Just as he has woven together our past, so now he is weaving together our future, and he will protect us. He will protect us from threats, even those of which we are unaware, and that was certainly true with this plot against Paul. Look down at verse 12, at chapter 23, verse 12. Now, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we've killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you uh, as though you were going to determine this case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And now basically they're going to call Paul down for a second trial. This is how this is going to work. But on the way, these 40 men or 40 plus men are going to set up a, an ambush. It doesn't look good for Paul. I mean, Paul knows nothing about this. I mean, these guys are very serious. No food, no drink until Paul is killed. You certainly, certainly couldn't question whether they were zealous. But look at what happens. God is at work behind the scenes. In fact, as I read these verses this week, it reminded me of the book of Esther. And maybe some of you know that book. It's about a similar cruel plot to destroy the Jews. And what is striking about that book, the book of Esther, is that that God's name is hardly ever mentioned. And yet when you read it, you read that book, you see God's fingerprints everywhere. And, and surely we have to say the same about these verses. Uh, God is hardly mentioned in these verses, and yet it's very clear that God is at work. I mean, look at verse 16, uh, chapter 23, verse 16. And now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, and now here we get a kind of a rare glimpse of Paul's family life. I mean, we don't know much about him, but we do know that he had a sister in Jerusalem. And she has this young son. And, and this is a great word, isn't it, to, uh, to the young kids amongst us. God can use you whatever age you are to accomplish his great purposes when you serve him. And she had this young son. Uh, this young lad just happened to be in the right place at the right time to overhear some discussion about this plot. 
And to cut a long story short, look at the outcome. I mean, he brings Paul news about this plot. Paul is in a very vulnerable position indeed. Forty men are going to ambush him. But now look at verse 23. Uh, verse 23. Uh, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers. Sorry, we're now talking about the tribune. Uh, this news about the plot makes its way to Paul and then makes its way up to the tribune. And, and what does the tribune do on hearing this news? Well, it's there in verse 23. And then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. You see, all because this young lad uh, overheard about this plot, uh, God protects Paul and actually he sends him with an entire legion, really, of Roman soldiers. There were 40 men who threatened his life, and now what? He has 470 men to protect him? Uh, Paul is more than that, traveling actually on his way to Rome. He's heading back up to Caesarea. Uh, God's plans are moving forward. God is protecting Paul. And uh, really, it's interesting too, Paul ends up with this letter as well, a a letter that vindicates him, uh, that frees him from any charge of any serious wrong. What actually was intended as a plot to destroy Paul, a plot about which he knew nothing, actually is used by God to protect Paul. It's used by God to advance his gospel purposes. God has a plan. There may be a plot by man, but God has a plan, a plan that no one can stop. And no plot, no oath, no cunning plan of wicked men can ever get in the way. In order to accomplish that plan, God can command a legion of angels, but he can also command a legion of Roman soldiers. If God wants Paul in Rome, if Paul must be in Rome, then nothing on earth can stop him. And God wants you to follow Jesus Christ. He wants you to be a witness for Jesus Christ, uh, wherever he's called you to be. And so you can be confident, you can be sure that God will get you there. Nothing can get in the way of God's sovereign purposes. We have to remember this, don't we? We need to remember it, especially when we feel like we have no control, especially when the future looks very scary. We can run into very serious difficulties. People, in fact, the devil himself may have all kinds of evil plots and plans against us. But that's okay, isn't it? Why? Because we can always rely on God's sovereign protection. Uh, Not that God will spare us from all harm. Uh, No, of course, we can't say that because Paul is here in prison. Uh, But even there, God reassures Paul that he is with him. He stood by him. What an amazing phrase. Uh, Jesus stood by him and reassured him. This is what God has planned for him. Uh, What an amazing thing. God orchestrated all of the details of Paul's past to help him navigate his present situation. And what an amazing thing that God is completely and utterly in control of the future as well, that Jesus Christ is on the throne, that having endured uh, plots and pain and suffering himself, having died for our sins, he was raised. Jesus Christ himself was vindicated. And if we follow him, then God ultimately can and will vindicate us. Uh, We can rely on him to guard us, to protect us, to ultimately save us from all harm through the Lord Jesus. And so we can commit ourselves to God's purposes. Uh, We can be committed to God's mission, even now in the present. Confident of God's sovereign preparation in the past. And confident of God's sovereign protection in the future. 
And I wonder, do we believe in those things? Do we trust in God in our lives? Do we believe that when we face challenges, challenges to our health, challenges in our work, challenges in our livelihood, challenges when we do engage in Jesus' mission? And more than that, do we believe in this when we're faced with opportunities? Uh, Particularly, I'm thinking about opportunities to share uh, the love and the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Do we have confidence that God is in control, that he has prepared us for this opportunity? Uh, And do we have confidence that he is in the driver's seat of his own gospel mission? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Uh, for the way you demonstrate your sovereign power and goodness and grace in the details of, uh, of Paul's life as we read of it in Acts. And, and Lord, we know it's not just uh, Paul's life we're reading about, but it's the advance of your gospel. And so, Lord, we thank you for the great truths of this text. Thank you that you are truly in control of our past, that even the painful, the difficult things in our past are under your sovereign power, and, and you can use them for good to accomplish your purpose. And Lord, we thank you that as we look to the future, you are with us. You go before. You prepare the way. Lord, we thank you that you are able, through Jesus Christ, to protect us. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us. uh, Help us uh, be dedicated to your purpose and your plan. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan and purpose for us. Lord, help us to, to follow you. Help us to be a part of this great gospel mission, this gospel road trip. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.